Our scripture reading for this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom I have, have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is, a, is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. Father, may we, you use these words to speak to us, to teach us. May you be glorified as we come before you, Father, wherever we are, in whatever part of life, whatever time of life, whatever situation we are in, we come before your throne, Father, to hear your word, to submit to you, to find joy in the midst of what you have spoken to us today, Father. Let these words fall on our hearts and may they change us and transform us and teach us and encourage us, Father, for your great name's sake. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. All right, so let's just jump into it. We got a lot of stuff to do, a lot of things to work through, a lot of scripture to look at. And you say, how is that any different than every Sunday? And it's not. It's the same uh, because this is our chance as God's people to gather together as one, to get into his word. Do we understand the privilege that we have that the God of all creation who is a personal and real and powerful God, has given us his word for us to not only study and read and go, huh, but through it, he reveals himself to us. He reveals his salvation for us, but he reveals his character to us, and he uses it to transform us. Do we understand the power of God's word? I mean, that's just make us fall over with amazement that this is what he's done, that we get to gather so, together to do this. So my hope is not like, well, I'm getting in my, my weekly um, uh, professoral uh, talking in front, droning on like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Anybody know that? Everybody who's my age and older understands that one, right? Everybody is like, who's Ferris? So talk to your parents. Let them decide if you want to watch that. or Anyway, that's, that's totally something else. It's droning on like, okay, I got my time in a church. Now I can go and do whatever I want. Like, we love God's word. Even when we don't like it. Does that make sense? That as God's people here at Elm Creek, we look and we read God's word and we want to read all of it. That's why we work through chapter by chapter. That's why we deal with things like cutting up a concubine last week. That was last week. If you missed last week, sorry, that was totally a reference that you'll never under, you won't understand. 
but why do we deal with stuff like that? Because God deals with it. And he put it in there for a reason. And we have the privilege to read it. So looking back to last week, just a little bit of a review. Because we want to get, if we just pull out a passage or a chapter out of Scripture without actually doing some review or even looking forward a little bit, um, it can be dangerous for us, right? A, a text without context is a pretext for a proof text. It's a chance for us to then just pull it out and say what we want it to say, but God has a reason for saying it. And it's no different, chapter 12 is no different than all the other uh, Scripture as far as it comes to the context of it. Upon hearing the siege of the city of Jabesh-Gilead, the Spirit of the Lord falls upon Saul, kindling his anger towards and rallying the people to fight the Ammonites. He gets really upset, and rightfully so. So they go fight, and after winning the battle, some in the army wanted to punish those who doubted God's calling of Saul to be king. Can he really save us? Is this really the guy that God chose? But Saul corrects them and checks their emotion. He says himself, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. It was God who won the day against the Ammonites. It was the Lord who acted to save his people. And it's the same for us today. God acts to save his people from our enemy of sin and death through the death, life, resurrection, and ascension of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the basics of the gospel. And through, through his sending of the Holy Spirit, he dwells in each of us as his children. And we, like Saul, are strengthened to walk in obedience to the Lord. Remember, Saul was reluctant to take up the mantle of king, but when the Spirit rushes upon Saul, he doesn't even hesitate. He kills his oxen, destroys his livelihood, basically, and picks up the mantle that God had called him to. And he led. Now today, with the king sitting on the throne of Israel, Samuel gives a farewell speech. And the office, the office of judge, at least as far as Israel has known it, is no longer needed, uh, for that's now Saul's role as king. He is judge and king over the people. But Samuel, he's not riding off into the sunset. He's never to be seen again or heard from again. You know, live like a hermit in a cave. He's still Israel's priest. But as judge, he has one last lesson to teach the people. It's a history lesson. I love history. It's a history lesson that's going to shake the people to the core. Samuel is not asking the people to evaluate if he is a perfect and sinless man when we read those first five verses, right? To stand up before the people and he says, evaluate me. He's not saying, am I sin sinless and perfect? Instead, it's, it's a list. The list that's given by him in verse 3 has to do with his obedience to the commands of the Lord as their judge, as their priest. Has he taken anything from them? Has he cheated or swindled or oppressed the people? Has he been compromised as a judge in any time from his youth to that moment by taking a bribe? Have I fulfilled my duty as God commanded me is what he's asking. And the people unanimously respond, 
Yes. Yes, you have fulfilled your duty. No, you have not accepted a bribe. No, you are not compromised. No, you have not given or taken what is not already rightfully yours, according to the commands of God. And they seal with this, with their, their words with, God is our witness. In other words, should they be lying, God will hold them accountable. But Israel has said this before, and this is where the history lesson comes into play. Chapter 12, 1 Samuel chapter 12, I want to read 6 through 18. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he has performed, that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed him, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbaal and Barak, and Zephah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord, your God, was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen for, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set him before you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against his command, the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Twice Samuel says, and now, therefore, stand still. Now, when I was reading these words this week, I, I couldn't shake the feeling that I have, I've heard that before. Of course, you think of stand still and you think of Elijah, like be still in the still voice, be still and know that I am God. And it just, it doesn't quite fit. And then, I don't know if you know this, you've got references in your Bible. If you have a study Bible, there's references that actually help you and kind of points you in different parts of Scripture. And the references in my Bible pointed me to the book of Exodus, which kind of explains why he brings up Moses and Aaron. See how it's all working together? He wants them to remember what had happened in Egypt. 
The people had been enslaved for 400 years, and in their distress, they cried out to the Lord for deliverance. And so God sent them Moses and Aaron, who led them out of their distresses. But then they get to the Red Sea, and the people of God are caught between the sea and the Egyptian army. And what do the people say in that moment? Is it because there is no graves in, there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. This is literally days after God just pulled them out of slavery. Oh, how quickly they forget how God delivered them. And so Moses responds at the Red Sea. He says this, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. That phrase, stand firm, is the same phrase for stand still. He uses the exact same words. Our English interprets it differently, but it's the same Hebrew word. If you want to know what it is, I can show it to you. I don't know how to say it. But it's the same phrase. Stand firm and see the power of God as he brings you, uh, brings about your salvation from the Egyptians. Stand firm on the power of God to deliver you just as he did from slavery just a few days ago. Why? Because he says, I am God. I stand firm because I am the God who will destroy my enemies. And he does. He destroys the Egyptian army. And then Samuel says in verse 9, but they forgot the Lord their God. And you think, yeah, I mean, wandering in the desert for 40 years would make you do that, right? No, three days later, literally three days later, they get thirsty and they begin to grumble against Moses because they came to uh, watering hole and the water was a little was bitter and they couldn't drink it and they start to get upset but once again god delivers them saying if you will diligently listen to the voice of the lord your god and do that which is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments all of his statutes i will put none of the diseases on you that i put on the egyptians for i am the lord your healer that's in exodus 14 but they forgot the Lord, their God. Three days after delivered from, being delivered from slavery, they're complaining they don't have enough water. And they forgot. Don't you think the God who can defeat the army of the Egyptians, one of the greatest nations, the most powerful nations in the world, if he can defeat them, don't you think he can provide a little bit of water for you? And yet they forgot the Lord their God. And so God sold them into the hands of their enemies. And the people cried out to the Lord, repenting of their unfaithfulness to him. And so God sends them judges to deliver them out of the hands of their enemies. And then Samuel says, and then they lived in safety. You, you see it a, a pattern here? But then they saw the Ammonites attacking them in the day of Saul and Samuel but they didn't cry out to the Lord. 
They cried out to Samuel to give them a king to judge and lead and deliver them. Israel's history of faithfulness is, this, is a roller coaster ride, to say the least. Cry out in distress. God delivers them. They are unfaithful to God. They cry out in distress, and the vicious circle is over and over again. If you've ever read through the book of Judges, eventually you kind of you know what's coming next, right? Because that's their history. In 1948, Winston Churchill said this, those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. Samuel's point is that Israel's track record of faithfulness is not really the best. They've forgotten. And so Samuel challenges them to be different, to learn from their history so that they don't repeat it. You have said this before, he says. You have done this before. Don't repeat it. And he says, though, though you have sinned against God, you and your king can still be blessed. How? He says, as long as you fear the Lord. And then just as he did in parting the waters of the Red Sea, God reveals his power by bringing thunder and rain, and you're like, well, what's the big deal about thunder and rain? It must have been a really big storm. Well, maybe. It was a wheat harvest, which is the dry season, and there's no storms in the dry season. And so this type of storm could only come from God himself. And it has the desired result. The people greatly fear the Lord, and they cry out. The rest of that chapter, verses 19 to the end, this is how it reads. And the people said to Samuel, and here's their crying out, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, I, I love this. Remember we always say this is the, the buts of, like, it's a beautiful word, the word but. It's not here, but it is kind of like in the background, and Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. You have. You've done this. You can't avoid this. Yet, now here's your butt. Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people, for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away both you and your king. Despite Israel's constant rebellion and adultery, God does not forsake his people. But why? Why would God do such a thing? Well, it tells us. He says, for the greatness of God's name and for his pleasure in making you his people. Now, Ponder on that statement. 
Israel is adulterous. They have rebelled against God. They were married to God in a sense, hence why marriage is the the understanding or the view or representation of between Christ and his church and God and his people. They have committed adultery over and over and over and over and over again. And God says, but I find so much pleasure in making you my people. If that doesn't reveal the heart of God, what else does? You have done this. But God has saved you to reveal the greatness of his name and for the pleasure at being his people and making them his people. God is always faithful. Always faithful, even when his people are unfaithful. Samuel responds with, of course I'm going to pray for you. Far be it from me to not pray for you. Now, if, if that was you and me, over again, well, no, let's just even minimize it. Like, somebody who sinned against me once, I, I would ignore them. I would not want to spend time with them. I would not want to pour into them. I would not want to be around them at all. But that's not what God does. And that's not what Samuel does. They said, pray for us. And Samuel goes, absolutely, I'll pray for you. It would be, be wrong for me not to pray for you. Don't be afraid, he says. You have done a great evil, but this isn't the end. Follow and serve the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn the affections of your heart towards empty things that cannot deliver you. Give your affections to the Lord who has always delivered you. Remember his faithfulness. But never, ever forget, both you and your king, that you, if you still wickedly sin against the Lord, you will be swept away. Which happens actually only a few hundred years later when the people are sent into exile because they forgot the Lord their God. Samuel was a faithful judge. He was a faithful advocate before the people. He stood between the Father and his people. And yet, he was not alive during the exile in order to steer the people back to the Lord as he did in this moment in 1 Samuel 12. And though many advocates came, all of those advocates left. And none of them were sufficient for all of God's people for all time. And God says, yeah, that's the point. None of this is enough for all time and for all people. So I'm going to do it for you. God, it's the beauty of the gospel. It's the beauty of the gospel. We fail and we fail and we repent and we repent and we turn to the Lord. We find joy we find safety and when we remember the Lord until we don't. 
and that God reveals to us his gospel message again and again and again. It was Christ. Christ is the ultimate, our ultimate obedient judge and king. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This is what it says. Paul says to the church in Philippi, have, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, they're speaking, he's speaking of Christ, though Christ was in the form of God, he was God divine in heaven, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held onto. He could have stayed in heaven where he rightfully belongs, but he let go of that. And he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Now, what does that mean? And he says, being born in the likeness of man. He became humanity. He became human. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, where have we heard that before, for his great name, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This tells us that Jesus himself humbled himself by forsaking his heavenly throne, coming to earth in the likeness of man. He became fully human, though he was still fully divine, living the obedient life that was demanded by God, willingly giving his own life upon the cross to pay the debt for my rebellion. And because of that, God has highly exalted his son so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Why? For the glory of God. For the glory of God. To point us to Him. Not to the empty things of this world. Moses and Samuel were obedient judges. They absolutely were, but they were not perfectly obedient. Samuel fulfilled all of his duties, but he was not a sinless man. Saul was an okay king. David was a great king, and yet they were not perfect kings. And this is all done for a purpose, to point us to Jesus Christ, the perfectly obedient judge, king, and advocate of his people. In 1 John chapter 2, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, 1 John chapter 2 reads this, first two verses. My little children, this is the apostle John, the disciple John. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, which is all of us, we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Through Christ's sacrifice, the hostility between us and God was removed and our relationship with God was restored, but only for those who believe in and submit to him. Christ is right now our advocate in heaven. Right now, 
He is standing before the Father for each of us who believe and put our faith and trust in Him. In very simplistic terms, Jesus is constantly before God on behalf of His people, advocating for and standing in our place. Mark sins, Jesus goes, I already covered it. Mark sins, and Jesus turns to the Father and says, I already covered it. Over and over and over again. Where Samuel's advocacy was limited, because he eventually died, he couldn't stand in that place forever, Christ's advocacy is eternal. How long is eternity? Forever and ever. Like, when the Bible says forever and ever, why even say that? Because how long is forever? It's not just forever, but it's forever and ever. Forever, for all time. Forever. He is standing before the Father, but how can we truly know that we belong to Christ? How can we be confident that He actually is our advocate, that He's standing in place of me, that when I sin, I know I already have somebody advocating before the Father? Well, first, because the Bible says so. (laughs) Second, because our lives testify that we fear God. To fear God is to be in awe and reverence of Him, to respect Him for His great power and His great might. But fearing God also means serving, obeying, and not rebelling against Him. This was said over and over again by Samuel to the people in 1 Samuel 12, for those who fear the Lord, they keep His commandments. Fear the Lord and follow Him. Fear the Lord and serve Him. Fear the Lord and follow His commands. The rest of um, 1 John chapter 2 tells us that those who have come to know the Lord live in the same way that Christ lived. Okay, so how did Christ live? Just I could say perfectly, but let's, let's actually go to Scripture, Philippians, and write this down. I'm, you can go to this later, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, but I'm going to read the 1 through 5 and then jump to the end, 12 through 16. This is what Philippians says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy Complete my joy, that is, complete Paul's joy to this church by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then jumping to verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation means live. Live a life of fear and trembling before the Lord. Stand in awe of God. Know his power. Know his greatness. And then he continues, why? Why should we live this way as as Christians? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You hear that? He finds joy 
in sanctifying us. Now, we don't, right? (laughs) We don't like our sins being revealed because it stinks and it hurts and it's, oh, I don't like it. I feel dirty and why would you even point that out? Just forgive me and get it over with. But God says, no, 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 no. I find good pleasure not only making you my son and my daughter, but making you like me. Do all things, Paul continues, without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Why? So that the day of Christ, at the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. How can we do such an impossible task. Because you hear that and you're like, I just grumbled this morning because I had to get out of bed because my room was cold. Like, why? Can I just call in sick? True story. The answer is no, I can't. I mean, I could if I was really sick, but it would be lying. That's the whole other issue, right? So if I can't not grumble getting out of bed in the morning... How am I going to live a life without grumbling? I I grumble at the smallest thing. How do I do this? How do we do what is impossible for us to do? Well, I'm glad you asked. He says, we hold on to the word of life. We hold on to the gospel message that eternal life is found and received only through faith in Christ as our perfect judge, king, and advocate. We hold on to Jesus Christ himself. And we were reminded, why am I God's son? Why am I God's daughter? It's not because I woke up this morning and didn't grumble. It's because Christ has saved me, despite me. And he has found pleasure in saving me, despite me. We're not alone in the battle to fear him to stand in awe of him. What is difficult for us is not difficult for him because he has sent his spirit to change and transform us. We saw this last week. When the spirit comes upon somebody, crazy stuff happens, also known as obeying God when we don't want to and when we can't. The spirit comes, dwells within us. God himself changes and transforms us teaches us God's will, what he wants, reveals to us not only our unrepentant sin, but reveals to us the truth of his word. And he strengthens us to obey as Christ obeyed. Only fear the Lord and obey God's commands. How how do I do that? God goes, I got this. I got it. Trust me. Hold on to my son. Hold on to the gospel. You can live a good life, good for you. But without the gospel, you're a good person going to hell. Hold on to my son. And you're a person who's striving to to live for God. Might I even say good people go to hell, perfect people go to heaven, and the only way to be perfect is through Christ. Because I don't know about you, I can't, I can't live a, a perfect life. 
I can live a good life, but I can't live a perfect life. Through Christ, the power of God is revealed, and we are made to stand in awe of our God and to stand in awe of his faithfulness, faithfulness to us as his people. I, I don't know if you recognize the, the music. Okay, Aaron and I meet every other week. Okay, we didn't meet last week. I kind of give him an idea of where I'm heading. But did you, did you hear those songs? I stand before the throne of glory. Nothing in my hands do I bring. Except for the fact that you had given me a heart of repentance. And I stand before you and give it to you. Give myself to you. I bring nothing to you that would make me be your child. And yet, you, you saved me. You love me. And you've forgiven me. And you change me and you transform me and you empower me. How does that not bring us as God's people to fear Him? To stand in the awe of His power. Now we go, well, there's no storm coming through. The, you know, I went by the Mississippi this morning. It didn't part ways for me. And we like to see, we want to see those things, Right? And the reality is, is probably the greatest miracle that God could ever do is forgive us and save us. The, the Red Sea is nothing. But to use Christ and his blood shed for us on the cross in order to cover our sins so that we can be in relationship with him here and stand in his presence forever. <laughs> Forget the Red Sea. And yet as God's people, we have to be reminded, don't we? It's so easy to get overwhelmed by this world or, or our own sin and think like, I'm just, like God, I'm, I'm fighting the same sin over and over again. I, it just feels like I'm failing. It feels like I'm failing. What am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? And, and God goes, I'm here with you. Remember. Ah, you guys know where this is going, don't you? Remember. The bread and the wine of communion is a remembrance service. There's nothing special as far as like, you know, somehow because it's up front and we're at church right now that that bread and that wine is going to make you a perfect person and it's going to save you because you took communion until three weeks from now and then you have to take communion again in order to purify yourself no there's nothing magical that saves us through liquid and bread you understand that bread is just like flour right it's just fancy flour that's all it is there's nothing special about it and yet when we take communion and we remember what we remember as god's people his faithfulness and his forgiveness but his great power communion should drive us to fear god to stand in awe of him but not to fear 
his discipline for our sins. He's our father. He loves us. He does, do, he does discipline us, but there's always open arms. He finds great pleasure in us as his people. Why? Because through us, oh man, he is seen as great. We, he finds pleasure in us for his namesake. And so, so as we're waiting to take the bread, as we're waiting to drink, we get in line and we gather them together and we sit back at our seat and we wait together as a family of God. If you're a, you don't have to be a member of the church, you just need to be a member of God's family. It's open communion. But we also ask that you take this seriously. Yes, it doesn't save you, but in doing this, you are publicly proclaiming, I am God's child, and I submit to him, and I am his. He is my judge. He is my king. He is my advocate. Only because of what Christ did for me on the cross. I am publicly proclaiming to all of you, I am God's. And then hence, in doing that, you're also proclaiming, hold me accountable to this. But we didn't really think about that, did we? By walking up here and taking that, you are telling everyone else here in this church, hold me accountable. Call me out in my sin. Remind me even of who I am in Christ, that my sin does not define me, that his son does. And so as we're sitting in our seats and we're waiting to take the bread and the drink together, may we ask ourselves these questions. Do I fear the Lord? Does my life reflect my awe of God? Or am I turning aside to empty things that cannot profit and deliver? If you are a child of God, remember Remember his great power revealed to you even that he would save a sinner such as me. Remember. And then together we will give him praise and glory and honor for his great name's sake. Amen? So when you are ready, go ahead, get in line, grab the elements, bring them back to your seat, and then we'll take it together as God's people.